0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, thank you so much for joining me for the latest Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. Got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. We're going to jump right into it here in a few moments. Among the things we will be discussing in this hour of the show... We're going to talk about why the term OK Boomer may be the first shot in an intergenerational struggle that's about to kick off. John Miltimore has a marvelous essay explaining why this is so. And just as bonus points, if you have uh, ever ridden the fo- written the <laughs> written written, if you've ever read the fourth turning, I know I, I should be a little better at English by this point. But if you've ever read this book, The Fourth Turning, you'll understand there are generational archetypes and each generation has its own unique role that it plays in a turning and what we're seeing play out is uh, right about on schedule that is the breakdown between generations so again we'll talk about that coming up in a few moments you ever wonder how far can political correctness go i can't be the only person who feels backed into a corner occasionally like now remember you got to use this pronoun and don't ever use this word and don't ever say this and and if you want to see how far it can be taken I'd like to suggest there is no finer example than to look to Great Britain to see just how wrong this can go. I'm not trying to say that they're the most politically correct society on Earth, but if they're not, they're missing a great opportunity. I will put it that way. And if there's time in this hour, I want to get this. I wanted to say, talk about this yesterday, but I, I ran out of time. Why bringing back the family dinner could help stabilize our wobbly society. So let's dive right in. Okay, boomer. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, you, I, I guess I, I better confess this just up front. Full disclosure, I am Gen X. In fact, I'm right on the leading edge of Gen X. I'm one of the first Gen Xers. Barely missed, you know, sneaking under the wire to be a baby boomer, but nope, it ain't me. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. But it's so interesting to see the the developing contempt that is starting to emerge between gen, between uh, generation Z, millennials, and, and the baby boomers, particularly millennials and the baby boomers. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a really thought-provoking essay about how that term, OK, boomer, which is, the, for those who don't know, I'm just trying to bring you up to speed, It's it's the dismissal of... I think one of the best memes I've seen describing this is someone saying, look, I grew up in a socialist country. I've seen the misery that socialism or totalitarianism can create. And I'm telling you, we don't want to go down that path to which a dismissive millennial says, OK, boomer, go back to playing pinochle with your friends at the senior citizen center, etc. It's dismissive. It's disrespectful. But there is a reckoning that is coming. And it's something that, uh, again, those who've been paying attention to the fourth turning would have seen coming a long time ago. In part because of some of the things that the baby boomer generation has done that has saddled millennials as well as other generations. I'm I'm not naming Generation X because somehow I want to believe we're immune from all this. I know I'm probably wrong, but come on, let, let me maintain my fantasy here. But uh, let's just put it this way. Generations that followed the baby boom generation have been saddled with incomprehensible levels of debt for things which primarily were to benefit the baby boom generation or support them in their old age and their retirement. They cashed a check that they could not possibly pay themselves indebting future generations as far as the eye can see. And by the way, this hasn't stopped. Let me jump into John Miltimore's article. He says, according to Smithsonian Magazine, an Assyrian clay tablet from 2800 BC bears a gloomy inscription describing how the Assyrian youth were ruining civilization. The tablet supposedly reads, our earth is desperate, I'm sorry, degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. End quote. now, this inscription is reminiscent of of another that, according to Newsweek, was unearthed in the Sumerian city of Ur, located er rather located in modern Iraq and founded in three three thirty eight hundred b c which says if the unheard of actions of today 's youth are allowed to continue, then we are doomed now. John Miltimore points out whether these tablets actually exist is unclear. Snopes maybe you 'd like to comment on this. what matters is that, uh, that variations of these quotes have been circulating for at least a century. And there's a reason for that. He says, few will disagree that there's a tendency for generations to character- characterize one another. Let me say that differently. Caricaturize. We turn each other into caricatures. The young tend to see the old as fuddy duds and scolds, while the young tend to see the young as disrespectful, lazy, and rebellious. Nowhere is this more evident than the current OK Boomer movement. If you're not familiar, OK Boomer is an Internet meme and catchphrase that went viral in 2019, used by Gen Z and millennials to mock baby boomers, grousing about their work ethic and attitudes. Now, he says, to be fair, young people have something to grump about. And he also offers as disclosure, I say this is a Gen Xer who has no skin in the game. They've been accused of being emotionally fragile, sexless, lazy ingrates, ...who are going to die faster than everyone else. So there! Now he says the extent to which these characterizations are true... ...is open to debate... ...as is the extent to which baby boomers and Gen Xers... ...actually believe these things. John Miltmore says one could argue that much of the discontent... ...is driven by weak social science and media... ...who fan outrage to gin up clicks. What matters though is that young people are getting a little tired... ...of the caricatures evidenced by the commercial success... ...of OK Boomer merchandise... In turn, baby boomers appear to be irritated by the young upstarts who are clapping back. Okay, millennials, Myrna Blythe, senior vice president and editorial director at AARP, told Axios, but we're the people that actually have the money. Now, the internet exploded over Blythe's comment, of course, and the AARP quickly disavowed her words. Now, while the overreaction to Blythe's comment is much ado about nothing, it does foreshadow a greater conflict ahead. The baby boomers might have the money, as Blythe put it, but they're also leaning on millennials and Generation Z to collect more of their paychecks. About 44 million Americans received Social Security benefits in 2018. Roughly 34 million of those were baby boomers who continue to retire at a clip of roughly 10,000 per day. That's a lot of retirees to support. Now, before you begrudge boomers too much, consider a few things. First, boomers contributed lots of money to Social Security over the years themselves. Second, most of them are banking on that Social Security income. One of the proverbial three legs of the retirement stool, along with pensions, employer-sponsored accounts, and personal savings. Third, boomers haven't done a great job building out the other two legs. 45% say they have zero retirement savings. So many of them really need those Social Security checks, even if they have less debt and more equity than any other generation. Nevertheless, Gen Z and the Millennials do have some legit gripes. Baby boomers might have paid into Social Security, but Millennials and Gen Z are being asked to pay a lot more for a program that will likely offer them less return. He points out in 1960, when the oldest boomers started paying Social Security they paid 3% on income up to $4,800. That'd be roughly $41,000 in 2018 dollars. By 1970, they were paying 4.8% on the first $7,800. Again, that's adjusted to about $51,000 in 2018 dollars. By 1980, when the youngest boomers were hitting the workforce, they were paying 6.13% on the first $25,900 of income, or roughly $80,000 in 2018. Workers today, on the other hand, are paying 6.2% on income, up to $132,900. That is a far greater contribution, if you can call it that, by a long shot. But the problem is, it's nowhere near enough. Next year, the New York Times reports for the first time in nearly 40 years, Social Security will be draw, begin drawing down its assets to pay retirees their promised benefits. And without program changes, that trust will be depleted within 15 years. So the Times says then something that has been unimaginable for decades would be required under the current law. Benefits checks for retirees would be cut by about 20% across the board. Does anyone think retirees will sit back and take a 20% shave on their retirement? No way. And John Miltimore says, "Not nah, me neither. So what happens? It's hard to say, but he says, first, we have to recognize there is going to be no easy fix. Now, I've got to pause here because we're coming up on our break. If you would like to weigh in, here's your opportunity. 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. Okay, Boomer. It's cute. It's turning heads. It's getting people's attention and making some people angry. But it may very well be the first salvo of a larger generational showdown. And we will be back to talk about it and take your calls right after this. Well, hey there. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service, 801-331-8113. We're talking about, okay, boomer, how that might be the opening salvo in a little generational conflict between the baby boomers and, well, particularly the millennials in Generation Z. As a member of Generation X, I'm sitting this one out, or at least doing my best to. So let's let's get some of your comments here, 801 331 8113 Sam is on the line with us from Missouri. Hello, Sam.
1: Hello there. Well, my comment on this is that before anybody gets too cocky and all this, may I remind uh, those upcoming generations that they'll buy into lies too that they will later regret. Because uh, one of the things that far too many of the baby boomers bought into is the whole idea. Congress tried to sell us that there was a Social Security lockbox. Okay, remember that it was going around for the longest time. Oh yeah. Which I knew. I knew better. There really wasn't. I mean, they just take a lot of the money. The reason Social Security is in the shape it's in is because it's part of the general fund, uh, and you know, leave it to government to do that. But I will simply point this out, and that is that. Uh, millennials and others who buy into socialism are going to buy into even a bigger lie that's going to be harder to reverse the, even than what we got.
0: Yeah, I, I, as much as they're at each other's throats and maybe it just feels good to have somebody to take out their frustration on, the truth is we're all on the same sinking ship.
1: Yeah, doesn't matter. I mean, the whole thing is going to go bankrupt regardless of what happens. And if they get their way with things like Medicare for all and all that kind of stuff like the Democrats want to do, they'll hasten the job. They'll really speed it up, you know.
0: No, that's that's a good point. Well, and not just Medicare for all, but, you know, look at all the different entitlements. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think how many. I think it was over a trillion dollars each, the proposals by Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders and I think Kamala Harris as well. John Stossel did a wonderful breakdown of this just a few weeks ago.
1: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, basically what it boils down to is who is anybody to say anything about baby boomers And I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that that the lie that they'll ultimately buy into if they buy into the indoctrination that's coming out of the public schools, which is, you know, all part of the indoctrination to get into socialism, socialism will bankrupt this country dearly when it, when it finally does happen. I mean, really, we're already bankrupt anyway. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of time when the whole thing is going to cave in on itself but I don't see how it could keep going. I mean, you know, all it would take is just for the Federal Reserve to shut the spigot off and it's done.
0: That sounds suspiciously like something a boomer would say. I mean, it's right. It's right. But I'm just, just saying.
1: Yeah. Well, and then you got China and other countries who hold a lot of our debt and China being one of them. I mean, who knows when that's all going to cave in with all the conflicts between, uh, the president administration, for example, in China, um, you know, and, uh, you know, my attitude is, as far as my own individual self, I didn't ask China to take on our debts. There's a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes that a lot of us out here, unless we were listening to the right news sources, didn't even know what was going on.
0: Well, and in some ways, I think people were more comfortable not knowing. They sleep, yeah. sleep better at night not realizing what the actual national debt is, how much spending is being done. You know, If we just ignore it, maybe it won't actually be there.
1: Yeah, well, that's what happened years ago, even before the baby boomer, boomer generation, when my parents were growing up. They thought that they had a tiger by the tail when they watched the 6 o'clock news at night. So, well, we see how far that went, didn't we? So,
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But that's all I got, Brian. Okay, Sam, great to hear from you. 801-331-8113. I guess it's helpful to be reminded. We're, we really are in this together. There's, there's wrongdoing aplenty, and it sounds like there are proposals for even more wrongdoing on an even grander scale, but it's not going to fix it. As John Miltimore uh, points out, he asks the question, first of all, he says, who's going to budge? Because one of the problems with Social Security, for instance, is that as the program has aged, you have fewer and fewer workers supporting more and more retirees. I've, I've always liked the analogy of, you know, there's a wagon. And, you know, there are many people pulling that wagon along and there are many people riding in the wagon. But we're getting to the point where the number of people riding in that wagon so vastly outnumbers the people trying to pull that wagon that it's becoming burdensome. In fact, it's becoming almost impossible for those who are pulling the wagon to continue doing that job. And this is to say nothing of the inherent unfairness of, well, hey, look, we're really sorry, but because of all the money we spent before you were ever born, (laughs) we have to take 75% of your paycheck. That's just not going to fly with a lot of folks. I mean, you know, you think France had some unrest with the yellow vest protests? I bet you would see something similar or worse if it were to come to that. John Miltimore points out in 1945, there were 42 workers per beneficiary. That's quite a few people pulling compared to how many people were riding. By 1960, there were just over five workers per beneficiary. And from 1970 through the 2000s, there were between three and four workers for every retiree. Today, the numbers look like this. 2.8 workers cover each retiree's benefits, according to the Social Security Administration. That number will drop to 2.4 workers supporting each retiree by 2030 believe it or not, in Europe, the worker-retiree ratio is even lower. So however you slice the data, it's clear that to sustain its growing population, Social Security will require much bigger contributions. (laughs) Okay, call them taxes, he says. FICA, whatever. The point is, the coming generations will be asked to pony up a lot more. How much? Well, the trustees of the Social Security program project the cash flow deficit over the next 80 years to reach a staggering $44.2 trillion. That's according to economist Veronica DeRouge. That's trillion with a T. Now, to put that into perspective, total federal revenues in 2019 amounted to $3.46 trillion. Now, there are pathways to making Social Security solvent, of course. Most of them involve young people paying more in taxes and retiring later to fund Social Security for a generation that's 10 times, I mean, that 12 times wealthier than they are. So I guess we could, we could say there's some legitimate beef here. And John Miltimore says the irony of it all is almost too much. The lazy millennials and self-absorbed Gen Zers will soon be asked to cough up trillions to cover the retirements of boomers who mercilessly mock them, all to fund a program most millennials worry will not even exist By the time they reach retirement. And he says one can't help but wonder if when called upon to pay these obligations, millennials and Gen Z will just cock their heads and reply. "Okay, boomer. Now, I'm speaking as a generation Xer. But I have not I don't suppose and I haven't believed for, well, at least the last 15 years that there's any chance whatsoever that I will have retirement, you know, that I can count on Social Security. Yes, I should put it that way. It's not going to be there for me. It's almost certainly not going to be there for these younger generations either. Hi, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for taking my call, Brian. I appreciate it. So I guess my comment would be is <clears throat> on this generation, uh, you know, the name calling back and forth and what have you, is that I think if we take the time, you know, especially if you have kids, to raise them right, give them uh, the right moral upbringing, no matter what the generations might say about each other. If you look around enough, you'll find that there are young kids that are, uh, you know, doing extraordinary things right now for the elderly and the less, you know, the, the disadvantaged and all that. And I think if we could just see that and point to those things instead of whatever the media is pushing at us, that it would, uh, it would you know do us all a great service
0: can't disagree with you no I think you're right now the question how right. do we how do we persuade people give up that habit stop watching so much media or at least stop you know responding to it
2: right that's the that's the $67,000 question but yeah I think it I, I think it all just breaks down to you know what does your what does your family teach the younger ones and I think it's you know it starts at the, the basis level which is in the home in the family if we can if we can start there at the at the very base i i think that's the only fight we have and the only chance we have is to is to teach that in the home and not depend on schools and media and colleges to to, to teach the kids what is moral and what is right
0: okay i got to stop you there cuz we're up against the break thank you so much for weighing in we'll be back in just a moment Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I had to go and dig it out, but i dusted off an old uh, column that I wrote. Uh, this would have been back in 2014, so five years ago. About whose debt is it anyway, and I'm sad to say a lot of this is held up unfortunately, because <laughs> government spending has continued, as well as consumer spending. I guess you know we shouldn't uh, it's not all just on the, the hands of the politicians as consumers and as citizens, we're spending ourselves into pretty serious debt. But I, I wanted to share a couple of quotes with you that, uh, that I had found for this article about uh, how how the u.s national debt is going to put generations yet to come into a form of debt slavery. And first of all, you have to understand, well, how did it get here? Why is it growing like it is? And there was this wonderful explanation from Judge Andrew Napolitano, who said presidents and congresses don't worry about paying back the principal or paying the debt service as long as they can continue to borrow in order or borrow more in order to do so. So as absurd as it sounds, the federal government borrows money in order to pay the debt service on money it's already borrowed and spent. Now, if that doesn't sound like a vicious cycle of debt, I don't know what would. But it means past and current politicians have borrowed unfathomable sums of money in the expectation that it'll be repaid by future generations. But there's a moral hazard in creating debt obligations for generations of individuals who had no say in the matter. And this is something that was understood for many years, for generations. The desire to live at the expense of others, that's a part of human nature. It's a materialistic trait of human nature. And even our founding generation warned about it many, many years ago. Thomas Jefferson wrote about it in a a letter to uh, James Madison titled, The Earth Belongs to the Living. Jefferson said the question whether one generation of men has right has a right to bind another is a question of such consequences as to not only merit decision, but place also among the fundamental principles of every government. And he described how a man who sought to bind succeeding generations to the payment of debts that he had incurred could during his lifetime eat up the fruits of the labor of several generations to come. And Jefferson's point was. His debt should be his own responsibility, not that of his offspring. Well, modern politicians pervert the proper role of government by promising benefits to their cronies, their constituents. And then they support that reckless spending by brazenly borrowing what they cannot extract by force from the populace through taxation. Now, there is no amount of political posturing that can disguise The kind of dishonesty that is being legally forced upon tens of millions of people who are going to have to repay these debts, but who never were given the opportunity to consent to those debts. And this is why when I talk about it in the context of fourth turnings, um, this is some of that intergenerational breakdown that often marks the crisis phase of a fourth turning, which just. So, you know, we're in one right now. Jim Quinn spelled it out like this when he was writing about it. He said the $17 trillion, at that time it was $17 trillion, now it's $22 trillion, national debt accumulated by elder generations to benefit themselves and the $222 million of unfunded entitlements promised to themselves is nothing but generational theft. It's immoral, and he says it's possibly the most selfish act in human history. Now, to me, the interesting part here is it actually leaves members of upcoming generations with a decision. Do we bind ourselves and our children to lives of debt slavery or do we repudiate the debt? John Miltimore alludes to this in his essay. Okay, boomer, you want all your money now? You want us to support you in retirement? Okay, But the question that hangs over all of this is whose debt is it anyway? Do we really have a moral obligation to assume the debts of those who are dead? Did they have have any moral right whatsoever to contract debts greater than they could pay off within their lifetimes? Now, I'm not going to tell you how to answer that question. That's one we each have to answer on our own terms. But before we answer, we should have a really clear understanding that those who would place debts upon the unborn over which these these unborn individuals have absolutely no say are doing something that I don't think can be called good or wise or honest. I, in fact, I personally, I would call it wicked. Now, those who hold the reins of power aren't likely to change, but eventually the sun is going to set on their empire. The IRS will continue to confiscate our earnings under the intimidating threat of jail or poverty. But no matter how much those currently in power try to force these debts upon the rest of us, these upcoming generations will have the final say in the matter. And they don't need to feel a shred of guilt for failing to assume responsibility or refusing to assume responsibility for a debt that wasn't theirs to pay. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't I don't know what the possible solution will be. All I do know is like Sam pointed out in the last half hour, we can't continue it can't keep going at the rate that it's been going. All right, I'm going to shift gears here for a moment. I want to talk for a moment about how far can political correctness go? Such an interesting article out of, uh, this is from The Telegraph. And we, I'm, I'm trying to do this without uh, trying to sound condescending to our, our British cousins, but um, holy cow. You want to talk about a society that has turned its backs on the most fundamental, inherent individual rights in favor of political correctness. This this is where you can see it right out there in the open. The article starts by saying the right to be offended does not exist. You heard that correctly, right? The right to be offended Does not exist, a judge has said, as London's High Court hears that British police forces are recording hate incidents, even if there is no evidence that they took place. It says Mr. Justice Knowles made the remark on the first day of a landmark legal challenge against the guidelines issued to police forces across the country on how to record non-crime hate incidents. If it's not a crime, why is that even a police matter in the first place? The College of Policing, the professional body which delivers training for all officers in England and Wales, issued their Hate Crime Operational Guidance, or HCOG, in 2014, stating that a comment reported as hateful by a victim must be recorded irrespective of whether there is any evidence to identify the hate element. Mr. Justice Knowles expressed surprise at the rule, asking the court, That doesn't make sense to me. How can it be a hate incident if there is no evidence of the hate element? And he added, we live in a pluralistic society where none of us have a right to be offended by something that they hear. Freedom of expression laws are not there to protect statements such as kittens are cute, but they are there to protect unpleasant things. Its utility lies in exposing people to things that they do not want to hear. So the case against the college is being brought by Harry Miller, a 53-year-old man who claims that HCOG is unlawful because it infringes on his right to freedom of expression. Mr. Miller is a married father of four. He was investigated by Humberside police earlier this year after Twitter complained that he shared a transphobic limerick. Even though no crime was committed, his sharing of the limerick online was recorded as a hate incident. And he was described as a suspect in police reports. Mr. Miller, who was previously an officer for the Humberside force, accused the police of creating a chilling atmosphere for those who would express a gender critical position. I'm just I want that to just sink in for a moment. You can't even laugh. You can't even joke around. I love it. my friend Joni uh, Malloy actually had the, a, a brilliant breakdown of this. She says, hate speech assumes the reporter of the incident is telling the truth. She says, if speech leads to a crime, then punish the crime. Because banning speech is a horrible legal precedent to set. And she asks, are you seriously ready to lock up people who expressed an unpopular opinion? It may sound nice until your political enemies use this rule against you. Because there is no standard to define hate speech except speech that leads to violence. And by the time it gets to violence, it was already illegal. So she says, what criteria is there to know their speech intends hate and will lead to a crime? There's none. And this is why I've been very against so-called hate crime laws and hate speech rules for a long time there is no such thing there's disagreeable speech and and you know what even a decent person can pop off but it doesn't mean that they are guilty of some kind of a criminal act it's to punish thought plain and simple as my friend Joni says if anything hate speech passes you are two steps closer to giving your enemy a tool to lock you up for having a dissenting opinion That's why you don't hand that power to government in the first place. I understand some people say things that are very disagreeable, that are hard to hear, that I don't want to hear. But the antidote to that is not we ought to lock them up and find some way to punish them and make them think happy and good thoughts and speak wonderful things that are soft to our ears. No. Use your freedom of speech to speak truth. Let the truth stand. It can do it. It doesn't need to be propped up by a bunch of laws that will eventually be turned around and used to punish you for not agreeing with someone else. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My number is 801-331-8113. By the way, can I take just a second here and encourage you, if you haven't already done it, to uh, tell a friend. I'm not saying you have to go door to door, okay? We're not going to put a name tag on you. Hello, I'm here to talk about the Loving Liberty Network. No, just, uh, if I, I know that there are a lot of people who listen to podcasts. There are a lot of people who carry a smartphone with them. We have this very handy little app. It's the Loving Liberty Radio Network app. It's free of charge. It goes right on your smartphone. We're streaming audio 24-7. We have a podcast archive of every show that airs on the network. And it's right there at your fingertips. And if you want to see pictures of what we look like, well, you know, that's your business. But there are pictures there, too, that'll give you an idea of what the face is behind the voice. Let me just warn you, though. Many of us are in radio for a reason. I'm just going to leave it at that. Nonetheless, if we're bringing some value to your day or a little bit of light and understanding to the the things that are going on around us, consider sharing this with a friend. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, every person who does this helps to get the message out and helps to uh, bring us into other people's awareness. So I saw an article here, I think it was yesterday, by Anders Koskinen. This was on intellectualtakeout.org about Bring Back the Family Dinner. And the first thing I thought of when I saw the headline was, I remembered, it's been, oh man, I bet you it's been 25 years ago. I was out coyote hunting with a friend. And I only tell you that because I just want to illustrate, we were far from civilization. We didn't have cell phones at that time. We just were out there where there was a lot of vast open space, was utterly quiet, good thinking atmosphere. And as my friend and I were sitting there and it was clear that the coyotes were nowhere near us and didn't look like anything was going to be coming around we started to visit. And one of the things he mentioned to me was that there was a very strong emphasis within his church in our in our community that uh, if the families wanted to really prepare their children to face the world, remember this is 25 years ago for some of the things that were changing and some of the influences that were starting to to have a, a negative impact The best thing they could do was to sit down and have dinner as a family. And I remember thinking about this and going, huh. I didn't even realize that hadn't really been a thing, but, uh, you know, consider how many nights a week do you sit down with your family and actually eat together? I think it's pretty typical in most households. You know, people have places to go. They have things to do. They have obligations. Okay, he's got scouts. She's got, uh, you know, this organization. Mom has a parent-teacher conference. And uh, I got something else to do. I don't know what it is. I always have something else to do. Basically, we're going our own separate ways. But there was a time when dinner time and sitting together as a family, that was almost sacrosanct. I mean, that that was the kind of thing where... You know, the the rule was you go out in the summertime to go play. Yeah, go play. Go have fun. But be home for dinner. And that's counsel I still give my kids to this day. 801-331-8113. We'll get to Anders Koskinen's uh, article in a moment. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty.
3: Yeah, hi, Brian. This is Daniel from Behind Enemy Lines. Daniel, my
0: friend, how are you?
3: Hi, I'm great. Always great listening to you, even when it's bad news. I just... Your your delivery is so pleasant that it sounds like good news.
0: <laughs> good news, folks! The plane's been hijacked. We're going to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah,
3: right. Something along those lines. I just have to uh, make my my usual question: uh, Had enough government yet?
0: Well, speaking for myself, absolutely.
3: Because I'll tell you, everything you're talking about, especially and uh, b- binding others to debt. And, and uh, extorting money from a population, let alone property and lives, uh, that's all stuff that governments do. They're based on immoral behavior, and like it says in the Bible, you can't get grapes from a thorn bush. So you can't get real morality from an immoral institution.
0: I'm in complete agreement but we've been taught that this is how it has to be i mean come on daniel this is the way it's always been or at least that's what people think if we try to change something why i don't know the world could be a very dangerous place
3: well that's right and uh, but what change are you thinking of
0: Well, uh, see, for me, I'm thinking of get government out of the way. Let us solve our own problems. I I think Sam kind of alluded to uh, the idea that, you know, there was a time where we we as families took care of one another more so than, well, mom's Social Security check, will cover it. I think we're going to have to look back to a model like that where family looks after family instead of pawning it off to, you know, some benevolent government agency.
3: Well, and not just that, but a cooperative activity. Uh, we still have co-ops that that pre-existed government that that solved things like roads and electricity and water and uh, even grinding grain, things that everybody needed. They got together, and uh, there were even uh, competitive institutions, so you could pick the one that was best for you. Uh, Policing, you name it, was all done cooperatively.
0: No, that makes sense.
3: So that's the way, to me, of, of the future, and it, it didn't totally go away. Go, government has co-opted some of that um, by taking over, uh, granting monopoly status to, say, telephone companies, electric companies, gas companies, and, and de facto oligopolies like medicine and uh, other, other, uh, other things that, that they say can only be done by this group and can only be done that way, insurance, uh, banking. You know, government does that. So if we get together and do it cooperatively, I think that's the way of the future.
0: I would not. Uh, I would not disagree with you on that. I just don't know how right. to how well, to pursue. Pers- yeah. Okay, well, it's, it's. I think it's going to have to start though on on you know small scale stuff. I don't know. I may have to become Amish.
3: Well, I'll have to send you a link. Uh, you have a Facebook account or something. I do oh, you have a website yeah, yeah. I know you have a website because I've downloaded some of your podcasts. I'm going to send you uh, a link. There are international co-ops that get things done, so we don't it's not even a, a question of starting small, although that's good too, but uh, they already exist. The, the answer's already there.:
0: Well, I would love to hear from you. So, so by all means, uh, you, can, you can either go to the Loving Liberty Facebook page or you can, you can find my personal Facebook page is pretty easy to find as well. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, I look forward to it. Thank you. Let's plant that seed. I'm there. Thanks, Daniel. Great to hear from you. 801-331-8113. Let me go back here for a moment to Anders Koskinen's story about Bring Back the Family Dinner. He says, growing up, my parents put a premium on ensuring we had family dinners together just about every night. And he says, these dinners were times to check in on how we kids were doing in school and to talk about problems, discuss sports, books, friends, starting in high school, politics as well. He says, although high school sports did cut down on their frequency, my siblings and I continued to learn a lot from those family dinners about ourselves, life and the world we would enter as adults. And he says, my family continues to place a premium on these gatherings, and my wife and I plan on making family dinners a cornerstone of our own household as well. He says, the benefits of a family meal go far beyond the surface level of the conversations generated during such meals. And he has links here to, to bear this out. Studies have shown that among other benefits, teens who have frequent family dinners have healthier diets, are less likely to develop an eating disorder, less likely to experience depression, less likely to use marijuana, alcohol and other drugs. Frequent family meals, he says, also make it twice as likely that a teen will have an excellent relationship with their father and siblings and one a, one and a half times as likely they will have the same with their mother. In spite of all these benefits, though, family time spent at the dinner table and in general family conversations has declined by more than 30 percent in the last 30 years. According to a recently released YouGov poll of Americans who live in households with two or more members, 52 percent sit down for a family dinner with all members of their family or all members of their household, rather, at least four days a week. Over a quarter of these households, however, only have family dinners one night a week or less. He says the problems which prevent families from having family dinners are varied. Some are predictable, like busy or conflicting schedules. Others are more depressing, like family members not wanting to eat with their own flesh and blood. Now, he says the last point seems like a good reason to ensure the family meal does happen. He says my younger brother and I didn't always get along growing up and some major disagreements surely happened around the table. However, we also learned how to handle disagreements with a tad of with a tad more civility from the more controlled environment of being seated around the dining table. So he says, yes, family dinners are spaces for kids to learn to share their feelings and communicate honestly and learn about the world from their parents. But he says, it seems that American parents might also gain quite a bit from being able to spend more time with their kids during dinner. American adults seem to agree with 46 percent of them wishing they could have family dinners more frequently. And that number jumps to 62% for the parents of children under age 18. Look, busy lives may be precluding family dinners, but if that's the case, he asks, where else could you possibly squeeze family time into that packed schedule of yours? Maybe it's time to reevaluate if everything on our schedules is really fulfilling us or helping our families. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.